Hi, I'm Juliette Steen. And I'm Chris Payne. We're Half Post Humans and hopefully you are too. When you think of food, the first words that might come to mind are fuel, sustenance, delicious, important. But if we unpack the word food and think about what emotions food inspires, we think of a few things. Home, family, connection, happy, that's for sure, and comfort, for sure, history and culture. Yeah, we all have a meal that makes us feel safe, warm. Maybe it's even a particular food scent or a tea that reminds us of mum or dad. But that feeling is universal. It's no surprise that you mentioned tea there. (laughs) Everyone knows you're a big tea drinker in in our office. Is that something that makes you feel safe and warm, reminds you of mum and dad? Yeah, definitely. I think there's uh, a link there for sure. So when I was growing up, um, when I was sick, the first thing mum would do would be to you know bring me a cup of chamomile tea and even to this day if I smell chamomile if I have chamomile it's just it brings me right back into that feeling of comfort and safeness and away from school which is always nice do you have a do you have a favorite or comfort meal uh well my comfort meals when I was sick at school was junk food because I would always lobby to be you know given special treatment. Poor me, I'm sick, I'm home from school. <laughs> let me eat, let me have a leave pass and eat junk food. I think that's where my love of junk food to this day comes from. For me, it's um, when we talk about the idea of food as love, it's a family barbecue. Growing up in Queensland, sitting out the back, having a big, you know, steak, sausages, delicious salads, hanging out with my parents and my brothers mm-hmm. and sisters, having a laugh. That to me is food is love. And that to me is what I think of when I think of my favorite meal. Yeah. Do you have a favorite meal or is it just tea for you? No, no, no. I do eat food as well. Um, my favorite comfort meal that reminds me of home and of my parents and my family is curry. So every Friday after a long week, um, my mum would make this huge pot of curry, chicken curry with lots of spices and we'd have it with rice and tomato salad and mango chutney and natural yogurt. And that even the smells of those spices just reminds me again of that feeling of um, being satisfied and being at home and with, with the family that I love. Well, all I can think about now is curry. So <laughs> thanks for that, Juliet. I think the other interesting thing we mentioned before about food is how it relates to culture and identity and family. And often it's tied into, you know, certain traditions, maybe where you're from, passing meals down from generation to generation. It certainly reminds both of us of things in our upbringing. And that really comes through in today when you speak to three people, Ronnie Kahn, Alex Rivchin and Vince Lombardo about the idea that food is love. You know, my, my two daughters, they will never know my grandparents, but by maintaining that food, and not just food, but other traditions as well, like language, mm-hmm. it's a way of conveying that past to them, making them a part of it, establishing that bond from generation to generation. I, mean, I grew up in a kitchen since I was, like, at the restaurant since I was born, so I literally slept in the restaurant at night. My parents used to put a blanket on me when customers still there because we couldn't afford the babysitter, you know. What I started discovering was it didn't matter where you'd been born, what colour your skin was, or what country you came from. Yes. Everybody had been told at some point there is a fundamental um, core belief that good food should not go to waste. Alex Rivchin is a second-generation migrant from Ukraine. 
Now a father of two daughters, food is a way Alex can pass down his culture and heritage so that his family's history lives on. I was born in Kiev, Ukraine, which was then the Soviet Union. And we arrived here in January 1988. We came here as refugees. It was following a substantial international campaign to liberate Soviet Jewry, which allowed families like mine to finally leave the Soviet Union and seek new lives in the West, away from the persecution and the discrimination. Mm-hmm. And so what was, what was that like? How old were you at the time and Look, what do you I, remember from it? I was only three years old, so I have not even a fleeting memory of what it was like, but I was raised very much on the stories of my parents and grandparents, and that very much shaped my consciousness, my, my sense of identity about who I was, about where I came from. And I heard, you know, atrocious stories of, of pain and hardship of, you know, being excluded from university because of their Jewish ethnicity, um, you know, the daily kind of abuse and ridicule that they would face. So it was a very challenging existence for them. Fortunately, I was spared from it, but I still feel like it's something that I very much inherited that's been passed to me as well, for better and for worse. What was it like then growing up in Australia? I remember a great sense of kind of alienation and I suppose fear. Fear was... the the kind of dominant emotion that pervades all the stories from the Soviet Union and I think it was difficult for my family to immediately kind of shed that that lens, you know, of viewing everything from the perspective of of fear and hatred and and being hated and these things. Um, And so in those early early months and years I think it was very difficult for my family to adjust to this new world, to realise we're no longer in a hostile place, that we're free to live as Jews or however we choose. But, um, it, I mean, it, it was difficult. We couldn't speak the language in those early months. And, you know, we relied on the charity of members of our community handing down clothes and furniture. So we were totally dependent on others, which was difficult for my family. Mm. But slowly we became more and more Australian. We integrated into this country and into its ways. And, it, frankly, it's bliss. When I look at the life that we had there compared with the life here, we are incredibly fortunate and we not a day goes by that we don't acknowledge that. And what part did food play in, in your upbringing? Or? It, it kind of occupied a central part in all of those stories. So, you know, I would hear the stories from my grandparents and parents about what life was like for us there. And I would hear stories like my grandparents surviving during World War II by eating boiled potato peels. And later in, in Soviet times... Um, you know, food shortages where the shelves would be completely empty of basic food items. My parents would queue up for days to get basic food to feed me and my brother. Um, And then there was the Chernobyl disaster and you had tomatoes growing the size of footballs and my grandfather would hop on trains that had come from far away in order to purchase uncontaminated food and he would jump off the train just as it would pull out of the station. So... You know, food really occupied that central part in these stories, but I guess the stories weren't so much about food. They were about love and family and devotion, but food was that common thread that tied it all together, that connected it. So it left me with this very romantic view of food. And it wasn't all grim and dark, you know. Um, My mother would tell how uh, she had a Sunday morning tradition with her parents. Every Sunday they would have herring with vinegar and onions and, and rye bread and potatoes. My mum loves that dish. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it's fantastic. 
my daughter, my two and a half daughter now loves it as well, which gives Great. me no end of pride. <laughs> so, you know, for better or for worse, food occupied that kind of central part in, in the consciousness and the storytelling. Did that change once you, once you immigrated? What was your food experiences, I guess, in your early childhood or what do you remember most? Yeah, well, initially it was a way of, um, I suppose, our food, our, our particular foods almost entrenched our, our sense of being different, of being other. And I didn't really like that. I mean, I would go to school and I would see kids eating roll-ups. And right now the thought of a roll-up is, you know, appalls me. It's but not great. Yeah, that's right. But, you know, when you're a kid and you're coming to school with, you know, salted fish and salamis and all you want to do is to fit in and to be like the other kids, um, it, you know, it, it kind of made me feel very different. But now that I'm proudly Australian and that I'm successfully integrated here, it is a way of, of maintaining that connection to the past, to mm -hmm. my grandparents and my ancestors before. And the food that we eat has certainly evolved. So it was very Russian Soviet when we arrived here. It's gradually become a bit more Jewish as okay. well as we've begun to observe some of the Jewish holidays and the Sabbath, mm -hmm. and certainly Australian as well. Could you run me through some typical um, Russian Soviet dishes yeah, and then yeah. how it kind of progressed? Well, because food was so scarce, uh, you wouldn't really eat fresh meat or fresh fish. It was all kind of salted or marinated so, in a way. That's right, yeah. to preserve it for as long as possible. And every piece of, of the animal would be used as well for one purpose or another. So, um, you know, uh, offal and bones and fat would be used for soups and, you know, others would be minced up to create rissoles and all these different things. But the great staples, I suppose, of the Russian diet were, you know, rich, hearty soups where you would basically put whatever you could find mm -hmm. in there, like like borscht, which again is something as a child which I hated, I couldn't, so I couldn't stand to it. Borscht, it's like a beetroot soup, it's different okay. depending on where you are. So me being from the Ukraine, it's made a certain way, in Poland it's made another way, I think they serve it chilled there, but it's a red soup with beetroot, potatoes, with meat as well. It's delectable, now, okay. now I love it, but at the beginning, you know, I, I found it repugnant. Yeah. And again, I wanted to fit in, I wanted to eat the same food as everybody else, so... Meat pies, exactly, that's right. That's, and, and, and now, now that food holds absolutely no appeal to me at all. How funny. I lived in London for about five years, and I was always drawn to the East End, which is kind of the historic Jewish mm -hmm. part of London, or, or it was kind of at the turn of the 20th century. Um, and a lot of Jewish refugees from, from my part of the world, from Russia and Poland, had sought refuge there and settled in London's East End. And it's very much changed over the years, that area. It's become, you know, very hip and chic these days. But there are still, the, you know, there's the occasional remnant of its old Jewish past. And there's a couple of wonderful bagel shops right at the top of Brick Lane. And I would always, I would always go there and seek it out and have these fantastic bagels with, with the, I could savour the mustard and the pickles mm. and that fatty beef and it, it was a way that I felt connected to its Jewish roots so had I had that same bagel across town in the west or in south London it just wouldn't have held that same kind of mystique it wouldn't mm -hmm. have connected me to the past in the same way because in those early months I couldn't speak English so immediately I felt that sense of distance from others and it led to fist fights in the playground really? and yeah it, it wasn't that kids were picking on me because I was foreign it was I couldn't, you know, I couldn't communicate properly with others. So that made me feel obviously, you know, excluded and distant from others. But that changed very quickly. You know, kids are very adaptable. And so within months, you know, I learned the language, you know, I was starting to acquire 
the culture and the ways of the schoolyard and um, I felt a great warmth to my fellow Australians. Mm. But um, in those early times, certainly it was hard, but that's, that's kind of the migrant story for every community group and anywhere in the world, that initial kind of sense of dislocation. It's very jarring, it's very difficult. Um, in a way, I suppose it hardened me, made me a bit stronger mm -hmm. to deal with those initial challenges. Um, I can't say that I faced any great you know, resentment or hostility from others. Kids are kids and they'll always find something in common with children and, and something, you know, at points of difference as well. So just with time, if you're resilient and, and you push through, people will find Australians to be incredibly tolerant and welcoming and that was certainly my experience. How does food play a role, I guess, in, in family or fam family gatherings now? It, it is always about the food. So when I go to my parents' home, immediately I'm barely through the door and I'll have food thrust <laughs> at me. So it's a way of conveying love and concern. You know, my mum always thinks I'm not eating enough, that, you know, that I'm losing weight or whatever. Um, so, again, it's a way of maintaining that bond and that connection from mothers to sons and, and so forth. And, you know, and my mother, she loves feeding my, my daughter, my eldest daughter, who's two and a half, and particularly feeding her the foods that she fed me and that my grandparents fed me. It's a way of, like I said, maintaining that connection. And, you know, my, my two daughters, they will never know my grandparents, but mm -hmm. by maintaining that food, and not just food, but other traditions as well, like language, mm -hmm. it's a way of conveying that past to them, making them a part of it, establishing that bond from generation to generation. Because even though they'll never know them mm -hmm. intimately, they'll know the way that they spoke to me because I speak the same language to them and the same foods have been served to them as were served to me. So on Friday nights, on the Sabbath, we'll bless the wine and we'll break bread, challah, the traditional Jewish bread on Sabbath. Um, and it really enriches our lives. It gives us a, a fuller sense of identity and of who we are. I'd love to hear more about the meals that you enjoy, either on Sabbath or just any, you know, family gathering. You know, what is a, a, a table, what does the spread look like? So a, a typical Russian table, but I guess it's also a Jewish table, it's not this kind of orderly serving of courses where you have an entree, a main and a dessert. The entire table is covered with every type of salad and dip and, and meat dish and cold cuts that you can imagine. So. It's like every, every meal is like a smorgasbord. And, um, Sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, good. it's pretty good. But, you know, this is all I've ever known, really. So, yeah. you know, sometimes I crave kind of modern Australian food. That's more of a, a delight or a peculiarity to me. Mm -hmm. But um, it, it has heavy kind of doses of Eastern European cuisine. Um, you know, even the gefilte fish and, and the meats and the soups. Um, but slowly it's become more Australian as well. So the table is this kind of contented mix of modern Australian cuisine and then traditional Russian and Jewish as well. How else do you pass down your Russian Jewish culture to your children? I think how how miraculous it is that I'm here, that I'm from some peculiar strain of the Jewish Russian people that managed to survive all of those chaotic events. And I'm not just going to give those traditions away. I think that would be a betrayal of those who fell, who aren't able to carry on the tradition. So I make a conscious decision to pass it on and food is certainly one way, language is another. So I speak Russian to my daughter and I will to my youngest daughter as well. Um, but storytelling I think is very important. I mean, that's what really gave me a sense of self, um, a sense of being Jewish and belonging to the Jewish people that my, my grandparents and parents gave me. And that's what I'm giving to, to my daughters as well. 
But I think that storytelling, sitting down with children mm -hmm. and just explaining where they come from, giving them a sense of understanding that they're, they're not just of themselves, they're part of a people, they're part of a continuum of history. And that's something I've certainly tried to instill in my children. Is there a meal that makes you feel at home or warm? You know, what's, what's your comfort meal? The Jewish Sabbath is very similar. Um, apart from its, uh, you know, place in Jewish law and tradition, it's more about always having the family together, setting aside one quiet time in the week for everyone to come together from their busy lives in the family home and to sit together uh, without the distractions of the modern world. And for me, eating the herring mm -hmm. with the brown bread and the potatoes is the same sort of experience. I think all adults have a very fond connection to those meals that they grew up with, like mine is chicken soup or... Yeah, that's a, very Jewish. Yeah, or, mm -hmm. a, or a curry that my mum makes, yeah. which is just so simple, Yeah. but it's been cooked for hours and the chicken is really, you know, it's tender and it kind of melts. And like even still to this day, that's, that's my favourite and I think that would always will be like that. It's just yeah, amazing yeah. how strong that connection is. It's, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, maybe it's all the senses that are engaged by, by the eating of, of food, but I mean, it, it's also a way that we convey love, you know, by preparing food for others, by seeing the meat. I mean, I, I take more joy from seeing my daughters eating than, than I do from eating myself. It's mm -hmm. just a way of seeing them healthy and enriched. Mm -hmm. So it's really an important part yeah. of family and identity. When I could afford that, when our family kind of emerged from poverty, um, a while after arriving here as refugees, the fact that we could eat pies, 4 and 20 pies, was like a source of pride, like we felt we'd arrived as Australians. Food enriches experiences, so <clears throat> at the footy I'll always have a pie. Um, or, you know, again, when I'm in New York, I'll always go down to the Lower East Side and I'll have a knish on Houston Street or, um, you know, chopped liver in, um, in Russ and Daughters. And it's a way of feeling connected to, to people and places. I guess it's those comfort foods that ground me, that make me feel that wherever I am in the world, it reminds me of who I am and where I came from. They're the foods that I always seek out. Vince Lombardo is the owner of Italian restaurant Maybe Frank. His parents immigrated to Australia from Italy, and food has and always will mean family. I was actually born here. Me and my two brothers were, uh, were born here. Well, my parents migrated in 19... When, when did you arrive? Me. Hmm. Uh, 1973. In 1973. Okay. But, uh, so we actually, we were actually born in Sydney. However, when we were kids, we actually moved to Italy for a few years. We spent a lot of time there. We did some, uh, we did some of our schooling there. So they were actually, when we were kids, they were undecided as to whether Australia was their home or Australia was the best place for them. Australia was the best, was, uh, was best for them or, or for us, or Sydney was, or Italy was. So we sort of went back and forth and decided this is our, this is our home in here. And where in Italy? Calabria. So right down the bottom, right down the bottom of the shoe. And what's what's your role now? What do you do? So now we own uh, I own a restaurant called Maybe Frank with my business partner Stefano. Stefano is from he's also from Italy, but he's only been here for six years. He's from Cinque Terre, really beautiful part of northern Italy. Because they're talking. And Teresa, tell me a little bit about yourself. Hey. 44 years of Australia, it's um, a lot to talk, to say. Yeah. Uh, what would you like to know? Um, so she also has a restaurant? Yes. Yeah. Our family also have a restaurant in Coogee? Yeah, we got a restaurant in Coogee for 
the last 20 years actually, mm. this wow. year is 20 years. <clears throat> yeah, and we had quite a few before that, but this is the one we, we stopped with also because my other son is involved a lot in it. You know, we, me and my husband, we don't work as much anymore. Yeah. I go there three, four days a week, but yeah. just to help them out. Definitely. Yeah. So she's a, she's a cross, yeah. she's a, a stay-at-home mom as well as... Mom, grandmother. Grandma now, yeah. Um, yeah. Bookkeeper, bit of everything. Yeah. 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 How, what was it like when, when it trusted dad? Oh, well, you see, the thing is, with me, I was only 17 when I Mama, came to Australia, and I don't Mama, think. Yeah. Listen to me. When it trusted dad. Listen to me. I don't think I was, you know, very aware of what was what was I doing. You know, 17. You, but then again, 44 years ago is a different story. It's not that I I, I never regretted. Never. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm very happy. I was very happy. Yeah. You know, but obviously my, my family is still. I left all my family there. It's still there. Me and my husband say, oh, we stay four years in Australia and then we come back. We did actually. We yeah. did stay four years. After four years, we came back. We went back, and I didn't like it as much as I thought I would. So. And then again, after when the kids were young, I think Morris was nine, seven and five, we went back, we wanted to stay, and we only stayed eight months, and it's not just very hard, we found it really hard. It's a very beautiful place, but you can't build um, a future. We had three kids, we we wasn't by ourselves, if we were by ourselves, fine, but you have to think of the kids. And my husband didn't wanna, yeah. never wanted to stay or live on the north Italy. He wanted to stay in Calabria, which is sad. And there's not much future. I grew up in restaurants, obviously. I worked there up until the age of about 25, 26. So I worked in there while I was studying architecture, um, which I finished around about 20, 25 or 26. I still uh, help out on the rare occasion when they really get stuck, maybe once mm-hmm. or twice a year at each restaurant. Restaurants. Bars, cafe, anything to do with food, I think, if you don't love it, you shouldn't do it. It's too hard. And for us, our family, food is, it's not important, it's its absolutely everything. And everything revolves around it. Yeah. Like we, we sit down and have, we have lunch, and during lunch we're talking about what we're having for dinner, like it's, it's very important. Picking the right restaurant to go to when we're on holidays, like all these things, like it's all about food for us. What role did food kind of play, you know, in your childhood, in your childhood? What's it like? For us, again, it was, it, was, it was everything. You walk through the door, first thing your mum asks is, have you had lunch, have you eaten, what do you want? Like I remember as a kid, or even today, mm. you can actually go to a house now, in the morning, at eight o'clock in the morning, she's already cooking. Wow. And for no reason. It's not like she's got people, she's waiting for people to come, or she's, any particular issue, she's cooking because she needs that food that you never know when someone can pop in. Or yeah. it's because just, they come in any time lunch or dinner yeah. or whatever and they say, What's, have you got anything for lunch? You have got to have something ready. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's rare you'll see nothing in the fridge cooked or ready to go. Or, like, she'll have 10 steaks in there, she'll have uh, her ragu oh, that she's been cooking for five. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What have we got? We've got, uh, we've got two, normal, two normal fridges and two really? full height freezers. Three freezers. Wow. Three freezers, two fridges. Kitchens. Technically, yeah. One kitchen upstairs, one kitchen downstairs. Three kitchens. Yeah. One up, one down, and one outside. 
And how did you learn how to cook? Is it just hey, well, around? As I said, I was only 17 when I came to Australia. I didn't know anything about it. I, I, I remember the first time that I cooked a chicken, I cooked it with water in the oven. Oh, Jesus. I was only 17, but then I, then I learned. Then my mother-in-law mother was a good cook. Okay. Yeah. Mm. So I learned a little bit from her. I learned a, she was very good. She was the original bit, chef at um, Mama's Visit. A little bit for, from my uh, husband, aunties mm -hmm. and families. Yeah. Okay. They used to... Uh, when, when we first came to Australia, every Sunday, all the relatives would get together and they cooked all day. All these old women, you know. 60, 70 years old, they're cooking all day. I remember a few years ago trying to create a, uh, a book with all the recipes, oh. and it's impossible because there's no measurements. And there's no, no there's no 300 millimeters, 25 millimeters. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's a little bit of this, it's a little bit of that, a pinch of that, a pinch of this. Our cultural upbringing was very, very important. Did you feel excluded or anything like that because of so when I was at school, I'll tell you some stories. So when I was at school, when we were kids, so when I was a kid, I remember being at school and my mum would make the most amazing schnitzel sandwiches and uh, and panini with prosciutto and mozzarella and olives and all this sort of stuff. And I was just in primary school. And I remember just opening this thing and it would just be like, there's enough food for four people. And I also remember swapping my gourmet sandwiches for simple peanut butter sandwiches because we just we weren't allowed to have them she didn't understand them and she just was, she refused to make I don't like it she refused I wouldn't to even make. give it to him no <laughs> yeah. way no Vegemite no veg oh, Vegemite so I actually bought a cafe when I was 30 years old and buying the cafe was the first time I ever tasted Vegemite and what were your thoughts I don't understand how people eat it <laughs> Is that understand what? How people eat it. Oh, there you go. It's See? crazy. It is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. It's a taste that I just can't fathom yeah. the popularity of it. I just don't get it. I just. I love it. You love so it? So he likes it. It's just really weird. I'd buy um, tomato sauce every once in a while, but not not in my teens, maybe 18 and onwards. Yeah. And, it, and I would hide it in the house. And if my dad found it, he'd throw it out. He'd throw it out and not say anything like, like nothing ever happened. The simpler the food is, the better it yeah. is. The, the thing is also, it's very, very important to use prime quality. Mm -hmm. You know, the quality's got to be number one. And then you don't need anything else. At every single table, mm -hmm. there's always, the first thing that goes on the table is bread. bread. Bread with everything. The only thing you don't eat bread with is pizza. That's it. Everything else is bread. It's always bread, bread. What your favourite childhood meals were? Okay, I've got a lot. I've got a Can lot. I tell you? So, yeah, <laughs> okay, go. You, you, okay. We'll see what it says. Okay, what was it? <laughs> should, what was it? Uh, you should say the answer, you should write it down, and we should see what the answer uh, is. I know, what the, I know what it is. There you come. Uh, <laughs> no, nah, it was kids. I mean, obviously, like I said, Nutella was my favourite. Gelato, just the obvious stuff. Mm -hmm. Although, yes, I know what she's getting at. I didn't love pasta as much as no, at all. I do now. At all. Today, I eat it five days a week. When I was a child, I didn't like it as much. I love chips, hot chips, mm -hmm. and I liked uh, the usual kid. You know, I like yeah, I like steak. I like a lot of fried stuff. Okay. But yeah. then again, I was a little bit chubby then. It's your favourite dish. Growing, dish. growing up. Yeah, growing up. Actually, I think. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it was because I don't know if it was because um, my my parents worked so much, right? So usually it was mum at home and dad was more more at work. 
Um, but my favourite or my most memorable was actually a simple um, cheese risotto that my dad made because at that time he had had a small operation for something minor or whatever, so he had a week off or whatnot, and so he was looking after us. And I remember he made it, and I made I made him make it two more nights afterwards. This is my nephew here. I'm going to probably start training him to, to cook in the kitchen in about yes. a year and a half. That was going to be my next question. Yeah. So I reckon by about 10 of you start. He took a pot today and from the kitchen he started cooking his little cars. He put in the pot his little cars, some later. He's already starting. He was doing like this. He said, no, no, try. Is it good? It's still a little bit hard. How important is it to kind of pass down your culture and through food? How do you do that? Just exposure or do you kind of have lessons? A lot of family no, time. Lessons. Family time? <laughs> a lot of no, time spent lessons, together. But, uh, it's an everyday thing for us. Yeah. You know, as much as yeah. we, we, we love Australia and Australia's our home and we're going to be here forever, still we need to continue you know, some of our traditions. Yeah. For instance, yeah. like I said, food yeah. is for us is, yeah. is everything. Yeah. It's important. So we need to keep passing it down. Ah! Culturally, it's actually changed a lot. We like 20 years ago, the only Where? people that cooked were... Remember? 20 years ago, 50 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, is women really in, in at home mm-hmm. because men traditionally working. But now it's just changed. Guys love to cook. I love having people at my house. I just live down the road here in Surrey Hills. But I have people always over as much as I can. Almost every night that I'm free, really. I like cooking for them. I like seeing, uh, trying new things with them, giving their honest opinion. It's really important. So this is Stefano. This is Bruno. Hi, so so you can obviously see he eats a lot of pizza and does a lot, a very little exercise. Italian. Stefano's upbringing was different to mine. Up, upgrowing. Upbringing, yes. I don't know. From an Australian, probably. Because in Italy it's different, the culture. I mean, it's probably what the same that their mother gives to them here. But I was just getting at home. You know, we go to work very early as well, and especially to, you know, if you wanna, you know, do your own stuff, you know. There's no money in Italy, you know, so you need to go do your work if you want, you know. I started to work in a bar when I was 14 years old. So how important is, uh, how important is food for you and your uh, family and culture? It's very important. It's fundamental. I, mean, I grew up in a kitchen since I was like at the restaurant since I was born, so I literally, slept in the restaurant at night. My parents used to put a blanket on me while customers still there because we really couldn't afford the babysitter, you know? So I grew up inside the restaurant. And when I was, like, when I was awake, I used to wash dishes at six years old. Not because, you know, it was made in a fun way, but, you know, I had to do that because it's part of the collaborate with the family. So Stefano was obviously very Italian. He's been here for six years, is it? Seven? Ten? <laughs> whatever. Feels like six. Whatever. But the point is, so she asked me a very good question. How are you, Stefano, that is now an Australian resident, uh, how are you going to make sure that your Italian culture stays in the family? I do. I already do in our restaurant because, we, as you can tell, we do. We do. You don't know, but everything we do is. With your children. Yeah, because. Because. I know. I speak Italian to them. I often bring them back to Italy. They're gonna have Italian food. They're gonna have a knowledge. We run Italian restaurant now, so I think like the same that their mom was lucky to do with them. I will be lucky to do with my own child. I want him to have an Italian upbringing. I want him to know about the culture why or what happened same as me like we grew up with the 
my grandfather did the war, my grandmother did the war, all of my generation, grandfather and grandmother, they don't waste food. But not because they're green or because you think we're stingy, because there was no food on the table. So this is the upbringing we had because we got taught to don't waste, not because it's cool or trendy. And what was your favorite, your favorite meal growing up? Huh? Pesto. pesto. <laughs> so where he's from, Vernazza Cicuterre, mm-hmm. that's what pesto stuff. And focaccia. Focaccia and, and pesto is from my region. Okay. So when I, as, a, as a kid, you grew up with a, as a kid with pizza focaccia, and then pasta with pesto, any pasta basically with pesto. Mm-hmm. Would make me happy. And would you have a food so Stefan and I are going to, we've already, uh, we've already <laughs> drawn up a contract oh. that we're going to uh, retire in Tuscany, I think. Oh, you've drawn up a contract? Contract, okay. yeah. And what age is that? Probably, uh... For Vince is very close because he's almost 40. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's true, yeah. Ronnie Khan is the founder and CEO of Oz Harvest, a food rescue charity that turns leftover food into meals for those in need. For Ronnie, food is about sharing, about connecting people of all backgrounds and circumstances and giving them choice. My name is Ronnie Khan and I'm the founder and CEO of Oz Harvest. Um, I certainly didn't grow up intending to start a charity, mm. nor did I intend or understand that I'd actually be involved so intricately with food and the value that food has in the lives of all of us. Exactly. You know, we take so much for granted. But growing up, I was born in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly, the, the dilemma and the challenges in South Africa are so visual. Mm-hmm. There was growing up during the apartheid era. Mm-hmm. But I've just come back from South Africa from a short visit. Yes. And quite honestly, it is still dramatically before your eyes. You can see who's hungry and who's not. Yes. And you can and literally it is a question of hunger. Yes. So it's interesting, you know, now with my new awareness of eyes, exactly. because as a child growing up when my mother would say, Eat all your food, she would tell us there were people starving in China. In South Africa, when we grew up, that's where we knew there were starving people. You know, nobody thought about saying, they're on our doorstep. Yes. So it's interesting. And what was it like um, growing up in that kind of environment? Did you, as a child, did you notice that kind of difference between Oh, you couldn't help but not. And I was very fortunate because in my family, um, we my family's values were that this was not okay. Yes. So my families were not followers of the regime, Mm -hmm. they did not, um, uh, you couldn't not abide by apartheid because it was law, and so growing up we did all have people working for us and with us who were black, Mm -hmm. because those were the jobs they could get, black people could not work in shops, black people couldn't work in banks, black people didn't have the same rights that we did, so you couldn't not know Mm. It was everywhere around you. But it felt peculiar. It felt... Oh, totally felt abnormal. It was normal. Yes. But it was not acceptable norm in my family. And for that, I'm very grateful. Yes. Because that set in place the values that put me on my path and my moral values. And how did food play a role in your in your upbringing? So food was crucially important. First of all, my mother was a marvellous cook and I was a fussy eater. 
So I didn't benefit from her fabulous cooking. Everyone would rave, and I would be very difficult. And who knows if it was manipulation or whatever, but the point is, growing up, I lost out. Mm. But one of the things my mother did when we grew up, um, my dad had been involved in a car accident, Mm -hmm. and my mother needed to work to support us. He was in hospital for months and months and months. And one of the things she did was bake cakes, 100 cakes a day. She'd bake them for bowling clubs. She'd bake for cafes and restaurants. Amazing. And that was a norm for me to decorate the cakes and to put the cherries on the top. But my job was to go out and deliver them with her. So I often, I only realized quite recently that my food (laughs) delivery life started when I was seven. How funny. (laughs) And I didn't like it then. You only just realized that. Yeah, it didn't. It wasn't when I started those harvests. It wasn't like, oh, I know how to do this because I used to pack the car with cakes. But slowly, it's come to me. The more I think about my background and the more I was asked, the more I realized that, you know, the value of food in our family and for Mm-hmm. You know, our, our, the people who worked for us was so huge. And now tell me, how did Oz Harvest begin? How did that even kind of come about? <laughs> yeah, so I, I, my business life, I was an event producer. Mm-hmm. So I was putting on private events, corporate events, gala dinners, weekends, conferences, anything to do with an, an event for either a corporate mm-hmm. or an individual. And the one thing that was common at all of my events was food. Because food is a beautiful way of showing success, abundance, generosity, gratitude. Mm -hmm. And so my events, the tables groaned and the, 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 the measure of success was how much food was left over. Because we were so abundantly generous that there was always food left over. And at that same time, as I was seeing more and more food, I started, my business had grown, mm-hmm. my life situations had changed, and I, I had come with, you know, I had started my business when I had nothing and built it to being able to support myself. Mm-hmm. And that started me questioning my own values and reminding myself what was important, mm-hmm. because as one... Re- achieves a measure of success and success is such an interesting I know. <laughs> but as what you know if success is the consumer trappings then I started questioning how much did I need and so looking to fulfill a purpose beyond commercial success measures got me thinking about what else did I need to do I was running a business that was providing all that I needed and more and how much was more, and what what more could I do to fill my soul? And that's when I started thinking, well, what I know is food, because I'm always producing it, and what I know <laughs> is that I'm always having food that's go right. to waste. Mm-hmm. When I could in my business, I would be taking that food to somewhere to give it to someone to eat. Mm-hmm. And I started thinking, well, that is a big problem for me every time there's food left over. I don't have a solution unless I take it somewhere. So what if I could create the solution that would solve my problem 
it perhaps other people had the same problem, what if it could solve that? So, you know, that's the place I came from. I wasn't thinking about the environment. I was really thinking there was food, there were people in need, the two should be connected. Exactly. And it only became apparent the minute I started really understanding the scale of what I'd set out to do yes. for myself, that in fact there were two outcomes, social and environmental. We've saved over 20 million kilos of good food from going to landfill, so that is it's a huge. incredibly huge number. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, as soon as I realized, oh my God, this is way bigger than I ever thought, yes. it just, we harnessed it in a different way. And what were the first few years like? How, you know, what did that look like? You know, it was a bit, I feel a bit still and felt definitely like the Pied Piper. Mm. Because the minute I started saying to people, hey, what I'm going to do is rescue good food and feed hungry people, it just became like, oh my God, what can I do to help? I thought of that. I was going to do that. I should have done that. I could have done that. I would have done that. So I really got extraordinary support because, in fact, I didn't have to teach anybody that very Mm. core thing because... Probably you've been yes. told that when you were growing yes. up, and it didn't matter. What I started discovering was it didn't matter where you'd been born, what color your skin was, or what country you came from. Yes. Everybody had been told at some point there is a fundamental um, core belief that good food should not go to waste. No. So I just tapped into a belief that was there and provided a solution. And so people were very excited and happy. So in fact, it was just, in fact, all 12 years have been a <laughs> roller coaster up that's never stopped yes. and has just that's been incredible. a very, very exciting and rewarding journey yes. because of what we've achieved. I must acknowledge the mm-hmm. we. It's hugely important. I mean, I did come up with the idea. I did start Oz Harvest. But we, the Mm -hmm. team, the magnificent people who have joined me along the way, who continue to be attracted to support Oz Harvest, are why Oz Harvest is now where it is today. More personally, how does this work kind of make you feel or how does it kind of enrich your, your life? I have recently, very recently, in the last six weeks, just had a grandchild. Well, oh, beautiful. Which means I didn't have the grandchild. I was presented with the oh, grandchild. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and quite honestly, three things have kind of brought me the most extraordinary joy. The one is my children. Mm-hmm. The second is our harvest. And the third is my yeah, grandchild. <laughs> so it's probably the most extraordinary, rewarding thing mm. because... It has made a difference. Mm -hmm. It's it's changed people's lives. It's changed this country. Mm -hmm. We've had laws changed. It's meant that fundamentally Australia is in an extraordinary position and and the only country, for example, where airlines are giving away their food. So that does make me feel extremely proud, but it also makes me feel full and rich. because that's a money can't buy feeling. It's it really not is. about 
It's not about more shoes or more jewelry, all of which I'm very <laughs> partial to, but, but they don't give me the same joy yes. that knowing that I've started something and that an organization yes. exists that will last beyond me, yes. that will continue to make a difference. So that is pretty powerful. And mm-hmm. food and the impact of food and the impact of food going to waste and the value and the dignity and the joy and the pleasure that food gives yes. is just enormous. Mm. So we see that every day. We get messages Incredible. every single day from people who've either received something they've never yes. tasted in their lives before or received food that is providing them with nourishment, which mm-hmm. they didn't have before, whether it's kids who were going to school without school lunch mm-hmm. and therefore misbehaving, not able to concentrate, you know, shifts in behavior that yes. are significant when there's food in your belly. So <laughs> the beauty is we've got stories from volunteers who've perhaps been out on a van or been at a market or come in contact with the people we deliver food to who, who share with us how proud they feel that they're now doing something that is meaningful and beautiful. Um, and then on the other hand, you know, there was a, there was a at the night noodle markets, um, a guy came, we, we have a stand or we have, we have a stall. It's like a, a Chinese trolley mm. and we, you can, for a gold coin, we give you a fortune cookie uh-huh. or fortune cookie so that, you know, it improves your own karma. Yes. And a guy came up and he threw a handful of silver coins in and we said, first of all, take a fortune cookie. And he said, no, I will leave that for somebody else. He uh-huh. said, but I'm putting some money in because when I had no food and I was on the bones of my back, I got food which allowed me to survive. And I want to say thank you. And honestly... What did you the, do? <laughs> you just, your eyes just yes, fall with tears a million even. times. And the, the volunteer that was there was a lawyer who, you know, it's a tough cookie. She thought she'd seen and heard everything. She just bawled mm. and just felt so, so grateful, so excited to know that what she was doing was making a difference. So we have a program where we take vulnerable kids Mm -hmm. um, from the agencies that we support or from all, wherever people are now hearing about Mm -hmm. it, word of mouth, kids who really turns out that these are kids that have probably never succeeded in anything, have been expelled from so many schools, have never had a positive learning experience. Mm And they come into our Nourish program, and it's a six-month program, and it's hospitality training. Wow. But it's also confidence building, and it's learning how to cook, and it's getting skills with the capacity to get a job. So it's to turn these kids into employable people with confidence and to break the cycle of intergenerational poverty. And honestly, this one set of parents said that their kid had, in 13 years, had been to you know, I think almost that many schools and had never, just never had a certificate, never finished anything. anything. 
and at his graduation, his parents were just, you know, this child has now got a future and fell in love with food and cooking and it was something yes. he could do and succeed at. And that's a lifelong thing, you know, that's not it's forever. just... It's forever. Forever, yeah. That's really incredible. Yeah, so it's pretty... These stories just happen every day. I went out, I just wanted a day on the van to remind myself what we do mm-hmm. and who we feed and where the food comes from. And, you know, walk, going into the loading docks of some of the big supermarkets and talking to the loading dock people is just beautiful because one of the loading dock people just said, I sleep better at night now, knowing that the food isn't going into the garbage bin. It's coming to you and then you taking it to people. So it's on that level. And then at the agency, we went to one place, a refuge that has young women, and she said that we had halved their food bill, which meant wow. that that the difference, that money, they could use on programs, on outings, on treats, on, on giving the young women more, whilst they were giving them better quality food that they could never have afforded. I guess out of work as well, what are your passions? Are they? I late? love food. <laughs> <laughs> I love cooking. I love entertaining. I love yes. nourishing and sharing food oh, with beautiful. my friends and my family. Um, because food really is so much more than just the nourishment. Oh, food is about, really about dignity. Mm-hmm. It's about sharing and caring and love really mm-hmm. I mean the minute you put a plate out for somebody so much effort you know even if it doesn't feel like it's a big effort an effort has been made to put food on a table yes. to share and so yes I love cooking I love eating <laughs> from when I was a fussy little girl I'm not That's a fussy little girl anymore <laughs> but I'm very mindful I love to buy local I mm-hmm. love to buy organic I love to buy healthy food um try not to I don't eat red meat Mm -hmm. I try not I try and eat sustainable fish yes Um, I think that we all have a duty to our land to our country I think that we should not be importing so much food I think we should really be eating local from as close as possible one of my last questions yeah what is your favorite meal so something that perhaps makes you reminds you of your childhood or your parents or your upbringing yeah so so first of all Friday nights I'm Jewish Mm -hmm. and Friday night is the Sabbath and so my whole childhood and continued we kind of like to have family Friday nights doesn't mean it's always with family it Mm -hmm. means we often have friends but that is actually a beautiful meal because one you do acknowledge and, and, and say a prayer of thanks, of gratitude, and I can't say... We try and do that every meal. Yes. But it doesn't always work at every meal. It's not that I'm not grateful, no. but there's sometimes that, you know, I don't actually stop. But um, most meals we do when I'm with my family, yes. we definitely give thanks and acknowledge the bounty that we have so Friday nights is a gorgeous night for doing that and as I say there's always thought around that meal Mm. Uh, it's so at home it probably would have been you know that 
we'd always start with a soup, mm-hmm. and then you'd have beautiful roast chicken with lots of veggies, and always a dessert. I love pasta. Yeah, I think pasta is so versatile, so comforting, and isn't it? so comforting, <laughs> and so yummy. I'm on a mac and cheese. Oh, bit of a thing, thing at the moment. Because it's just when it's crispy and yes. golden on the top and cheesy. wet and cheesy <laughs> and rich, it's delicious. <laughs> yeah, but food is such a joy, isn't it? It is. I mean, it it's seriously. I, I it's do. It's not just it sustenance. So it's no, so no, much no, it's more. Way more it's, every yeah. time, you know, especially if it comes with the awareness yes. and the intention around the gratitude mm. for the fact yes. that every time we ingest. It's actually giving us life. Yes, fuel and yeah. love. Yeah, totally. Exactly. I think, I mean, I found that the older I get as well, the more I appreciate that. Absolutely. I think yeah. as well. You know, yeah. as a child, you just kind of think, oh, broccoli. No, but now Absolutely. it's like broccoli. Exactly. <laughs> wow, this is going to keep me young. Yes. It's going to give me, you know, my help for my um, iron and it's yes. going to do all of those things. Exactly. And I do think there's a much greater awareness around the health benefits of food and that connection but I think we just can never ever forget the dignity that food provides Mm -hmm. so one of the most beautiful things for us in our harvest is we know that when we are giving people food that they couldn't afford Mm -hmm. that you give and that there's huge choices there's such a dignity in choice and so Mm -hmm. when we arrive at an agency for example they would come to the van and they can take the fresh fruit and veg they can take the the bread they can take the yogurt if they want they can take so you know it's giving them options it's options yes. and it's hugely important to remember and to be grateful for the fact that most of us you know tend sometimes to take for granted the extraordinary the the quality of the produce Mm. we have the quantity we have the availability that we have what I want to put out there is each and every one of us should find something that we care about that's bigger than us and that they should volunteer time there's nothing more rewarding no money you've ever earned feels as good as when you give your time and you find purpose and meaning so it's us we have power we should never underestimate the power that each and every one of us have in creating change. It's been really inspiring to hear the story and what you do. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And that was Ronnie Khan, Alex Rivchin and Vince Lombardo speaking with Juliet Steen. Next week, Libby Jane Charleston speaks to workers on the front line who bear witness to grief and how they deal with the trauma. You can subscribe to HuffPost Humans on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favourite podcast platform. An episode will be released each Thursday morning. If you're a HuffPost Human or know someone who might be, please send us an email at podcasts at huffingtonpost.com.au. Listener.